We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to US News and World Report, we're the 25th top paying career. Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Recorded live. All right, everyone. This is Cliff Muncy. I'm here with Milo Townsend and John Ainsworth. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Cliff. Doing well, thank you. Uh, the topic today we're going to be talking about is Cliven Bundy's uh, allegedly unconstitutional stand. Um, Milo, you had read an article in, I believe, The Atlantic it was. about... Uh, <clears throat> the author was uh, saying that Cliven Bundy was taking an, uh, had taken an unconstitutional stand uh, in his resistance of the BLM, and they were citing Nevada's constitution, uh, specifically when it came to uh, the term paramount allegiance, saying that basically uh, the people in the states owe paramount allegiance <clears throat> to the United States or to the federal government, actually, due to the, due to the federal government and uh, in the exercise of all constitutional powers. Um, and this was, the funny thing about this, or the interesting thing about this, was that it, this proceeds, um, or seems to proceed to me from the dates that I've looked at, Recon the Reconstruction Acts. So this was in contrast to what, I guess, or seemingly in contrast to what we usually look at with Reconstruction being that pinpoint time period where state rights were eliminated and we became nationalized, this seems to suggest that it came prior to that. Well, let me let me interject a little bit on that. Is number one is the whole war was waged on the principle Abraham Lincoln's principle, his personal belief that everyone owed paramount allegiance to the national government and that secession was a crime. It had never been tested, and in fact, it was opposed to what virtually everyone thought the actual relationship between the states and the federal government was. But since he had taken that position, and what you look at, and the guy did some pretty good research on his article, is Nevada was coming in as a state during the war, and so since and so did West Virginia. It was 1863. Yeah, and so what they were doing is. They were, they were laying down with all the new states. They were trying to make it very clear, this new relationship that Abraham Lincoln and, and the 30, 36th, 37th Congress, 36th Congress, I think it was the opening of the war, Congress, was uh, the principles they were trying to establish or, or indoctrinate into people. They were dictating it to the, uh, these new states coming in. And again, I would have to say that's a violation of the Northwest Ordinance which says that any new state has to come in on equal footing with the originals. And equal footing of all the originals was not a known and unambiguous concept that the federal government was given um, paramount allegiance over their states, and that once in the Union, you could not get out. So you see this shift happening. It's 1860, 1861, 8 to 8, what, 1868, you start seeing this this concept coming in. Yep. 
Well, that was kind of my reaction to it as well when I read it was that uh, it was really um, it was really the mentality of Reconstruction, the ideas that you know the the controversial ideas that we deal with all the time uh, coming in before Reconstruction during the war. So really, it kind of makes us backtrack a little bit, specifically when you're looking at Nevada. And you mentioned one other state, John. What was it? West Virginia. West Virginia, yeah. That was the state they carved out intentionally. Um, Yeah, so with at least those two states, you kind of have a little bit of an exception, apparently, to the, the statement that Reconstruction was when it began, 1867, and, you know, 66 was... The, the Civil Rights Act, um, that was where the language came from regarding citizenship and who could vote and who couldn't vote, what the body politic was going to be. So you can see the development, the evolution of the defining of who was going to be the new body politic going all the way back to the beginning of the war, really. At least that's the way that I saw it. Yeah, and just a, a kind of a silly nuance put in there is – Nevada came in as a state, and to say West Virginia came in as a state, you'd have to put an asterisk beside that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, West Virginia. Yeah, because it, it did not come in with by, with the consent of the state of Virginia. No, no, it, it couldn't have. Which is that's a constitutional limitation. It's in the Constitution. No new state can be created within the jurisdiction of another state, except by the consent so, of. My, my question to you, John, I think is, uh, you've got. You mentioned the Northwest Ordinance. Was that binding at the time as a as a law? That yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, uh, the Northwest Ordinance was a, was originally um, adopted while we we're under the Articles of Confederation, and it was one of the few laws that, as soon as they went under the Constitution, they readopted it. It was that important to them, okay. so they readopted it as that principle. Uh, that, that states have to come in on equal footing with the original states. I knew that it had come in or originally been passed under the Articles, and that was why I asked, because I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, it was repassed under the Constitution, re- re-implemented. So it requires <laughs> all the states center on an equal footing with the original 13, and Nevada clearly didn't do that. So is Nevada a state? Uh, well, this is where you have to go into the concept of the legality and acceptability of uh, de facto governments. You know, when you get into a de facto government, it says that when the de jure, the, the lawful government, is back in place, they can either accept some things that de facto did as lawful. It's kind of up to them. Now, obviously, my, my legal position is that the United States Congress, everything they've done is a nullity <laughs> since 1861 uh, when they went rogue on us. And um, and there are no new real new states in that they really need to be admitted in on equal footing with the original 13 with lawful citizens uh, rather than the, the United States citizenship concept. And that's the wording that you start saying right there with the uh, um, Nevada uh, Constitution coming in. And, and I think one thing that people confuse is they look at Reconstruction as only that process, post-war process. And when you look at the concept of Reconstruction, well, what was reconstructed? The union was reconstructed. The, the relationship between the states and the federal government, that relationship was reconstructed. What we had was done away with. 
and and so the process of 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 changing this relationship between the states and the federal government started with Lincoln waging the war, saying states have no right to leave. Excellent explanation. Makes sense to me. One thing I was citing here is that, uh, you know, of course, Nevada was, Nevada was not the only state that they were citing here. And I, I, was, I was looking for it and unable to find it. But um, I think North – oh, here it is, North Carolina and also Mississippi. Um, so even the states that retain the phrase paramount allegiance today, like North Carolina and Mississippi, don't share Nevada's explicit constitutional openness toward ar- armed federal intervention to enforce it. Uh, and so I, I don't know. That kind of makes me wonder, you know, how many other states beside besides Nevada sort of started this process, actually entrenched in their constitution prior to, you know, actual re- reconstruction. Well, I would just say that once they passed the Fourteenth Amendment, no state had to put it in their constitution. It was just part of the law of the land at that point. If you accept the Fourteenth Amendment as, as legitimate and all that. Okay. So it's not required to be put in. Now, again, North Carolina and Mississippi were reconstructed states. You're, you're reading that out of the reconstructed constitutions, not the original constitutions of those, of those states. Yeah. And so you're seeing this phraseology being forced in by the federal government. And, uh, you know, some states put it in, some didn't. But, again, once they ratify the 14th Amendment as a condition to come back into the Union, you know, they're hanging themselves just by voting on the 14th Amendment and, Come back into the union. Change, basically, changing their uh, citizenship. Yeah, changing, changing the whole relationship. Yeah. Yeah. What composes their state? What's giving is making every person in all the states a citizen of Congress, so where Congress has control over, them, rather than a citizen of your state. That was a change of the Fourteenth Amendment, Civil Rights Act, the Fourteenth Amendment. Makes it work. And, and the whole concept was Congress. You know, they were saying that well, all these states, they're these little racist and bigoted states, and they can um, prejudice people and, and and take groups of people and prejudice them. But the federal government would never do that. So all the power to uh, be benign and good needs to rest in the federal government, and we will never abuse this power of forcing people to accept groups of people they don't want to accept. <laughs> we see that the federal government was not the proper place to put that kind of power. Well, this, be, this, country up. this may be going back to Milo's question, but if you're if you if I guess from a from a, a law standpoint, you know, you're going back and fighting Reconstruction, and there were states prior to that exact point in time that had already adopted uh, or that, that had already put the the notion of of uh, how, how did they say it uh, <clears throat> paramount allegiance to the United States and their constitutions. How do you go back? How, how do you go back? Even let's even just say let's be radical and just say that the Reconstruction Acts were adjudicated as being unconstitutional and everything started to change. <clears throat> you know, how do you go back to those other states and fix those other states? Well, I don't think there's going to be any other states than possibly Nevada and, and West Virginia. Potentially, I'm not even sure about West Virginia, but I think that uh, you've got to look back and see is that phraseology the free will of those states? Um, and was it, you know, was was there any sort of uh, pressure or coercion to enter the Union as a state in this time frame while we're under in war? <clears throat> to put that phraseology in, because the war was fought on the principle of secession was illegal, mm-hmm. uh, and and 
and if you can't find anything on it, then it's you know once you reestablish the union and go back to Nevada, say well there's if if you look at those words as binding on them, you'll say well every state in the union can leave except you know Nevada and West Virginia and, and Washington D.C. and you'll have those three. Well, okay. <laughs> well, my question when I was reading the article on that same point was this: um, I'm sure Congress had the prerogative; they had the option of not accepting Nevada's state constitution as it was written and presented to them in the application for statehood. Well, is there an obligation? Is it incumbent upon Congress for them to reject a state constitution on the application of a territory for statehood that includes phraseology that's inconsistent with standing federal law and the Constitution as it was. In other words, I guess what I'm asking is, did Congress really even have the, I guess, the right to accept Nevada on those terms as a state? Hmm. Yeah, if, if Nevada was freely choosing that. Okay. Because the whole uh-huh. issue is, is to be on equal footing with the original 13 means that all the decisions were the people are freely doing it. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not like there's a whole lot of preconditions to that. Um, it's got to be the consent of the free will of the people. Okay. So equal footing is specifically defined. Actually, you, you'll probably find no, it's not uh, uh, specifically defined. Okay, because I had always assumed that equal footing meant that you know it included state citizenship the citizenship was attached to the state rather than to the federal government and obviously a republican form of government which is actually a constitutional requirement beyond that i really wasn't sure what equal footing meant but those two things were the two keys in my mind right but again if if the people you know if you have the the state of nevada or whatever state you have and they say we love the union. We never want to secede. We think that's the way it should be. And they just want to put that into their constitution. Just like some states had in their constitution, they reserve the right to leave the union. Okay? Right. You can put in whatever feel good, whatever you want in. Okay. Uh, and as as we can tell from history, as, as Congress will decide whether they will allow your the, the state constitution that they accepted uh, to stand on its own words or whether they're going to violate that. Um and with the obviously with the states that said that uh, secession, we had a right to 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 withdraw. Congress did not honor that. So you got the issue of purity of law uh, versus what people with political power will do when they're in power. Okay. Uh, Congress will do whatever they darn well please. We've seen way too much <clears throat> evidence of that. Milo, did you uh, did you happen to continue reading through that? Um, uh, where where it actually says that in the Constitution of, of Nevada, where they first put that in in 1863. Later on, it says that state officers are to be elected every two years and supreme judges for six. And then it says paper money is prohibited. Actually, no, I did not see that. <laughs> I thought that was interesting because you've got these people that are, you know, arguing that it's an unconstitutional stand. And the thing that they're arguing is, from this uh, thing here that says paper money is is prohibited, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is that is actually interesting for them to make an issue of Clive and Bundy's 
position and then, you know, base that on the, the Constitution that says you can't have paper money. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, well, I was actually, I, I'm kind of trying to get to a point here with uh, with the, the line of question I was interrogating John about. And I guess the next step in that was when you have a, a an overt statement of paramount allegiance, does that not alter just by default? Does that not alter the nature of your citizenship? Can you have state citizens of a state that owe by, you know, by the command of their state constitution, even if it was freely written that way, can consistently owe paramount allegiance to a to a federal or a national government, a central government, and still be state citizens? Well, I think when you get these these tiered relationships, like you know, state government, federal government, it gets a little bit strange there. I look at something, I try to find an analogy that's kind of similar, and I'd look at like NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty uh, Organization, is, uh, you know, we have... In that treaty, it says that if any one of them is – any one of the members of NATO is attacked, it's as if all are attacked and we will come to their defense. So we owe paramount allegiance in treaties to NATO. Now, what happens if we withdraw from NATO? Okay, Does that mean just because we have paramount allegiance in the capacity of NATO? Yes. You know, but we do – we reserve the right to withdraw, and just like in the in the union – we do look to the union as being permanent. You don't go into it saying, "Hey, yeah, we, we'll, we'll come into it for five years. We don't like it. We'll hop out." You can't have a, a, a relationship like that. To when it's advantageous, you hop in, hop out. Right. Our founding fathers said, "You know, you have a long train of abuses and usurpations. Maybe you got a right to leave." And and so we look to it as demi-perpetual, <laughs> not not totally 100% perpetual. I mean, again, look at the phraseology of the Articles of Confederation. And so you have to look at what your paramount right is. Your paramount right is to uh, uh, self-perpetuation, self-defense, protecting yourself and and your people. And if the federal government becomes destructive of that, the people have an absolute right not to be subjugated to something not of their consent, even if their forefathers put it in the Constitution. I mean that's that's how we started this country was off that principle. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense to me. <clears throat> so what you're saying ultimately is that Nevada, Nevada could put that in their constitution and they could be a legitimate state within the federal union, you know the the pre-reconstruction constitutional union, and all of that could be consistent with itself. It it doesn't have to be internally conflicting. Yeah, and that's because that phraseology is not binding if there's a violation of the relationship. Okay. Makes sense. You know, if, if if Congress says, okay, we're just going to come into Nevada and we are going to intern all your people and put, you know, fill it full of Syrians, you know, they're not bound by that relationship anymore. You're trying to destroy us. And so, yeah, it's it's as long as the relationship is working and, and, and the federal government is doing what its charter is to guarantee and protect the rights of the people of the states – then you know you'd be hard pressed to sit there and want to leave. If the if the government is protecting your rights, why would you want to leave? 
Mm-hmm. If they're doing a great job at it, why would you want to leave? The only time you'd want to leave would be when they violated their premise for existence, which is guaranteeing and protecting our rights. <laughs> okay. So let's put this in the context in a, a thought experiment here, in a hypothetical world where Nevada is actually in a federal union. The federal government, just say for the sake of argument that the federal government actually did have some prerogative to do things in Nevada. I mean, obviously the details would be different. It wouldn't be the BLM, and it wouldn't be, you know, removing private, privately owned cattle from quote-unquote publicly owned lands. Uh, but assuming that the federal government comes into the state of Nevada and does something that's wildly unpopular like this, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the article, and the very, very top of the article has a picture of the guy with the, the flak jacket and his AR-15 aimed at the, the federal agents. In the context of a federal government and a, a, a free and sovereign state of Nevada properly entered into the union, how then does there, or how then would there, state constitutional provision about paramount allegiance alter the relationship or their options for for redress of grievances uh, with respect to the federal government with the things that they're that they are actually doing today would they be more illegal less illegal I, I would say you got to look at the relationship and I think you hit it the nail on the head when you said redress of grievances the people of Nevada have to operate as a body, as a body politic. Sovereignty resides in them as a body, not as individuals who think they're being harmed. And so you would have to – the proper way to deal with that would be to get with the uh, uh, Nevada Congress or, or House, Senate, I don't know what they've got, <clears throat> legislature, and, and bring up these issues and file formal complaints that you know, or, or try to change that, negotiate a change in relationships. It needs to be done – from the representatives of the body, not from the individuals. But that's, that's not anarchy. necessarily the way that you would say that they should go about it at this point in time right now. I mean, if it were legitimate, if this were a legitimate gripe, and it's, it's, a, it's a Nevada issue, you know, the federal government owns so much land, and they're taking away the grazing rights and all this, then the proper way would be to go to have those people go to their legislatures and, and redress this grievance and try to get their legislature to redress it on a national level. One thing I'm wondering on this, because I keep seeing these the things about the fees, and I saw somebody mention that the fees have continued to escalate and go up and up and up. And now while a lot of people that are against you know the Bundys and so forth about you know, taking a stand, they're saying, well, there are, you know, hundreds and thousands or whatever number of other ranchers that are paying their other fees. Why don't you just pay your fees too? Um, but on the other on the other side of the argument, it sounds like, generally speaking, the BLM isn't particularly, they're not particularly fond of it from anybody's uh, perspective or, or mostly uh, in that area. Um, I just wonder, I just have to wonder how how much of that that they've already done? You know, maybe this is is because it doesn't seem like a new issue uh, because it's been going on for like I think 20 years. He said he hasn't paid the fees. 
Well, you know? to, I mean, to step it up, I mean, obviously you have uh, you have layers of government, and also you can have layers of tyranny. Because, I mean, theoretically, in, in the scenario Milo espoused, the state government could be in cahoots with the federal government and in tyranny about this issue, and it could be any issue. And then it becomes a matter of whether the people think it's a right worth fighting for as a body to free themselves from that tyranny. And it could be to free themselves from the state tyranny just as much as to free themselves from the federal tyranny. And this is where you know you get into where it appears that they feel like they're at. But then, then the issue is, is do you have the power to actually make the change? Because if all you're doing this for is to get awareness, well, then use this for awareness. Go to your legislature. Let them know you're impassioned about it. You want change, and and redress it to the to the national government. Um, or you just got to have an all-out win. And we think the best way to deal with all this stuff is to reestablish your state in a lawful manner, and then you have a whole new relationship with the federal government. They don't own your property, and you can start doing with it as you please. So. Kind of to clarify then, the hypothetical situation that I portrayed a moment ago is not, in fact, the situation that exists because the state government is not actually properly established at this point in time. They're, the state of Nevada did not come in on, on equal footing with the original 13 states. Or at least I don't I think don't, you can make that argument right I don't, now. I, I don't think that it did. I mean, I'm... I'm assuming no, the, that the it issue came is, in, in the midst of war and that those provisions – I'm going to assume those provisions were probably at least implied, if not overtly coerced. Now, I could be wrong about that. I could come to learn that everybody in Nevada was perfectly happy with that at the time, and, and in 1863 that was the free will of the people there. And if that was the case, then their state constitution would stand as is because it's and proper. Correct. Well, I, I think what I'm trying to do is actually explain to you what you just so wonderfully articulated in your response on Facebook to these people of you're right and you're wrong. You know, ah. You're both right and you're both wrong. <laughs> is, is and and that's where we're at. Is is you and and the I think the analogy you're giving me or this uh, scenario you're you're creating to figure out what we can do with it is a blending of both issues. And you've got to decide which side are you standing on. You know, are you just going to stand on the side that, okay, Nevada entered lawfully and uh, here we are, and now you're in violation? Or are you going to say that the rights of Nevada and what it does with its land falls in with the the the, the lawful state citizens, um, and we need to reestablish that because that body's not here anymore. You know, it's not exercising power. And so you've got to, you know, you, you got to pick which side because if you're in the middle and you're trying to look at the rights you should have if you had this, because the way law works is law says that everything that's passed, just like going in with the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, we can see clearly it was coerced. You know, you can't. Uh, the method of amending the Constitution was uh, totally violated. You know, you do not, you know, annul a state and then make a precondition they ratify amendment to the Constitution to come in. And so we can see that, but the way law works is they have to assume that if it hasn't been repealed, the 14th Amendment is valid law. And so now they've got to make judgments on whether the law – how to apply that law as valid until someone comes up and says 
we're challenging the legitimacy of that law of of, of that of the Fourteenth uh, Amendment itself, uh, or the ratification process. Actually, we're 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 challenging the ratification process used to pass the Fourteenth Amendment, and it, it all boils down to what is the question in front of the court. And so, virtually every court, to them, the question of is the law valid is never in front of them. It's how do you apply the laws that have been passed unless you specifically challenge the law. This law is not valid, which is what we do. We challenge uh, the creation of their jurisdiction because of the Reconstruction. So we put that issue in front of the court rather than, you know, did you have a license? Were you speeding? Did you stop at the stop sign? Our issue isn't any of that because as soon as you get on that side, they're going to say all the laws that are passed are lawful. Our laws say you're supposed to stop at a stop sign in this manner. You didn't do it. You're guilty. Our issue is, was your jurisdiction created lawfully through the Reconstruction Acts, through uh, uh, the, the forced ratification of the 14th Amendment? Because we think there's issues there. So it just depends on the question. And if you really gotta, you got to uh, couch your question perfectly. Well, actually, you don't have to when you're going against nefarious people. Because you can you can write it perfectly, and they'll just say it's not perfect. In fact, we don't even recognize it. If the people of Nevada reestablished the state on lawful and footing with the original sister states, and as composed of state citizens loyal to their state, does the BLM cease to have any authority within that newly create uh, newly reestablished state? It would be a nullity. Its authority is over areas in control of the federal government. It has no authority over. If you can find, if you can find authority in the Constitution as written, you know, prior to the Fourteenth Amendment, that the federal government has authority to control lands and states, by all means, look for it. I doubt it's there. They have. They can pass exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over their areas, their arsenals, their forts, ten square mile, uh, their ships. Um, Lighthouses, anything that flies their flag, the post office, well, the old post office privatized. But uh, that's where they had jurisdiction, not in all the lands of who can graze and who can do this, that, and the other. You know, unless it's a military base, you know, in North Carolina, you know, we got Fort Bragg. Well, the state of North Carolina can't do anything on Fort Bragg. That's federal property. We of course, the argument of those supporting the BLM is that the BLM came in to assist, I guess, in helping to manage those lands. Is that is that the understanding? Yeah. Actually, uh, I was listening to uh, a whole lot of LaVoy Finnecombe's, uh, well, actually, I was listening to the audio and not watching the video per se, but I was listening to his videos yesterday evening, and that's exactly what uh, what took place according to his portrayal of the history behind it all. Um, just briefly, what he was explaining was that in the 30s, the BLM was created and uh, that basically they came in and told the Western ranchers that, you know, there's this federal territory that the, the federal government itself just decided it was going to to maintain and, and preserve and manage uh, kind of as a public commons and that the ranchers just just to help out. me out here, Milo. Just help me out. Uh, when when Nevada came in, all their territory belonged to Nevada. The federal government wasn't laying 
any claim to authority over any of it, even for Indian tribes or anything of that nature? No, I'm not really. really. I'm not really sure, but I assume that the federal government maintained claims all the way back going to, you know, before Nevada's statehood through that process and, and onward. I just assumed that. I'm not really sure how much territory out there the federal government had a claim on and how they envisioned that relationship or who managed it or anything. I don't you know. know. I'm, I'm just I'm, telling you. Just well, thinking, and again, this, I'm just saying this as I'm thinking it. Well, if Nevada put in their constitution that they have paramount allegiance and, in fact, are in fact making themselves United States citizens, even though that status hadn't been created yet, then they are coming in as a glorified federal territory, federal yeah. possession, uh, under the, the guise of being a state. Right. State and name only is how I've been saying it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a point. There's a lot of points that we need to discuss about this. I'm writing notes down right now. <laughs> that's one of them. Uh, um, I was actually going to ask that here shortly. A reestablished Nevada, quote unquote. What would that look like? Would it be a state? Would it be a territory? I'm not really. I mean, I have my suspicions, and I've discussed them online, but I'm not really sure. Uh, exactly what a reestablished Nevada would look like. What is the lawful status for well, here's a what I would say, Nevada is, resident? Here, here's my my status. Is we're all in a de facto nature, all 49 states, with the exception of you know North Carolina. <clears throat> we have reestablished based upon these principles, and as we know, there are a lot of uh, state sovereignty movements out there in well in North Carolina with RUSA and. Uh, uh, Republic of Texas, based off of all sorts of different legal concepts. We believe there's only one legal concept under which you can reclaim it, and and that is the uh, the unconstitutionality of Reconstruction to to reconstruct the federal union. Yeah. So, I would say the right way to do it would be since we have reestablished, <clears throat> the people who want to reestablish in Nevada would get with us. If they agree with our legal principle, because we're the ones they're going to align themselves with, we would have to or elect senators and representatives, even as one, um, to the federal Congress. Then mm-hmm. they would apply to us, and we would be—you know—it would be the beginning of the recreation or reestablishment of the union. Right. Ideally, it would, it would be better if several of the other states that don't require permission to come in would just reestablish. Uh, because we've gone to the exception. We've gone here. Our very first state that potentially can come back in is the exception to where they have to apply to come in, Then we have to accept their constitution. Right. It would be a whole lot better if some of these East Coast states would, would come in first. Right. Were there 32 or 36 prior to the creation of West Virginia and Nevada? Of, going okay, North Carolina was the 39th state, and uh, – and then uh, who came in first? One other state came in before North Carolina, so that would have been 38. So at the end of the war, there were 37. Um, so that means um, 35 probably at the beginning of the war, because I think two states came in during the war, West Virginia and Nevada. So we've got the majority that could reestablish <laughs> without having to ask permission. Absolutely. Gotcha. 
What, what do you mean by ask as permission? Long, as long as they believe their right to reestablish is based upon what we say, the, the unconstitutionality of the Reconstruction Acts and the coerced passage of the 14th Amendment. Right. right what, and what the, and the illegality of the war itself. What do you mean by without asking permission? Without asking they permission have a right. from a reestablished federal government, federal proper, meaning the states reestablish on the basis of the original Constitution, pre-14th Amendment Constitution. Oh, that they already had in that correct relationship with federal with the federal government. Right, because the Constitution says that any new state that comes into the Union, they have to apply uh, basically to the, you know, they have to have permission from the legislatures and from the Congress to come in. You know, you just can't have Guam or Puerto Rico say, hey, we're a state now. <laughs> you know, they can't come in on their, themselves. They've got to get permission. They've got to go through a process. But all these th- 35 other states, you know, they have a birthright to be in here as long as they want to pick up their birthright. Right. So they would reestablish and then ideally, uh, in in a perfect world, those 35 or so would reestablish. They would all elect representatives to, I guess, <laughs> I hate to say this term, but a, a it's actually the genuine federal Congress rather than a shadow federal Congress, but it's not the de facto one that has representatives right now in Washington. So we would essentially reestablish those states, and those states would reestablish a proper federal government, and then Nevada and its, you know, its state citizens, or its, I guess at that point in time, they would really be, you know, federal residents in a in a territory uh, legally properly they would be, uh, they right. would apply again, and the, the the proper constitutional reestablished federal Congress would vote upon their statehood at that point in time. Right, because right now there is no national government or federal government uh, that represents the citizens of the several states. Exactly. There is only a Congress that represents the United States. It's elected by uh, United States citizens residing in the states, uh, and they're the ones that vote for it, and it, it's not binding on anyone else. Right. They're not my representative. They're, I mean, even though, you know, it's just like in occupied uh, France. I mean, we, <laughs> they are the uh, big gun in town, and we kind of got to give them a little bit of uh, uh, recognition uh, as having power. But the issue is, do they have authority to exercise that power? So we've said before that there are there are primarily or generally three categories of reconstructed or nationalized states. Does this add uh, a fourth category to that, which fell before direct military reconstruction, or or is it uh, kind of? I would say it would still fall in that third category that we've always had. You have because the the categories were. The states that were reconstructed, you know, physically, the the, uh, the ten southern states that had to be, you know, just reconstructed, and then you had the states that were in the union at the time, which these two do fall into that category. But and the issue is, is well, how were they reconstructed? Well, they were reconstructed by uh, uh, the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment, saying all persons born naturalized in the United States are United States citizens. All of a sudden. Okay, so they're nationalized by the passage of the 14th Amendment, not by military occupation. But then that also would take those two states and say, okay, well, what that does is is, is the states that were already in the Union that 
that changed their status based upon the passage of the 14th Amendment. Once you take back the 14th Amendment, they have to go back to their original status, their pre-14th Amendment status, which would be lawful states with the exception of West Virginia and Nevada. Nevada would go to a territory. West Virginia would just go back to being a part of Virginia. Okay, so the third category is, is those that entered uh, after the, fort, the Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment. Is that right? Right, and and these these two, it, it technically, is, I guess, you know, the more I think about it, it technically is a fourth category because they have to revert back to uh, their pre-reconstructed uh, uh, state status. Um, they're they're, they're and, a territory and, and the that's, that's just, going to apply to the other states, or to going to apply to be to be a state again, or to become. Right. A, well, most of the western states would fall into that category. I say most, not all of them. Uh, they would. Most of the western states would have to apply. They would technically, right now in law, be considered territories. Is Oregon included in that? No, Oregon think... actually existed prior to Reconstruction. It was. 1850s, I think, was when it came. I think Washington, Oregon, and California all were yeah. states. Yeah. Hmm. So those states would have a a legitimate pre-Civil War status to fall back on. Absolutely. Um, but Nevada um, and a lot of other Western states wouldn't. But Nevada and West Virginia being the only two that came in during the war uh, and under dubious circumstances, I would say those are just the exceptions to you know, I guess minute exceptions to the third category. I don't right. I don't really know that they constitute a whole fourth category. But anyway, I mean all these technical details are worth discussing. But we had a brainstorm moment just a little while ago and we kinda like fast forwarded over about three topics that I think we need to kinda go back and address one at a time or, or more neatly. One of them we kind of already dealt with, and that was whether or not Nevada would technically be considered right now a territory or a, a legitimate state. And we kind of have settled on that that the the legal consequence of their situation entails that they're really technically a territory right now. Correct? I would – that's one that would probably take more time because I've never really thought that hard about it. Um, I can kind of at, at this present moment, I can go two ways on that. I could go, well, they did come into the union, but then were they coerced? Was that on equal footing? Well, no. So was it lawful? So I could kind of bounce around on that. Um, you gotta go back and look at the actual issues. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And you can always make an exception. I mean, the laws of necessity shows you make a, a an exception. Um. And and that's something that we would just have to look at whether you could make an exception for them because it it is a um, unsettled point. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's fair enough for that right now. I mean, I don't expect us to answer all these questions definitively at the moment. One other thing that we were kind of talking about was Cliff had asked a question about the background on the BLM. And I guess if you want to backtrack and just step back to that a moment and discuss it, Cliff, could you rephrase or repeat your question again? And we can kind of try to pick up there and talk about that because I think that's important. I know I was telling you about what I had listened to, 
to Lavoie's statements, his representation of the history. Um, what was what was it you were asking exactly, Ian? Oh, well, I was just going back to the, I guess, the original, you know, what was the whole point of the BLM even coming into existence, in my understanding. Uh, and, and I've done further studies on this in that the BLM was composed of two different, I believe, organizations, one which actually preceded Reconstruction, uh, uh, maybe even the Civil War. I'd have to go back and look, but there's two organizations that kind of merged together to create the BLM, and they were created as the, I think there were some issues, some, uh, you know, as, as is usually the case, some type of problem where the government needs to come in and uh, set it straight or feels that it needs to set, you know, set it straight. And, and the BLM was there to help manage those lands, I guess, and keep yeah, feuds from happening, I guess. To keep what from happening? Feuds, fights, you know. Oh, people. I got you, I got you. Yeah, managing resources and that. wars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Clive, or not Cliven, um, Lavoie's videos actually discuss that exact question, and that was kind of what I was trying to, to answer a little bit of. Um, I listened to those videos, and he was talking about the creation of the BLM and in the 30s when it came into the, the western states and began to tell the ranchers there that that it as a as an agency was going to oversee and manage to help them manage their grazing on this this public commons this federally occupied territory now the first question was and this is what the the bundys and the hammonds and and lavoy himself and many others have been raising as the issue does the federal government constitutionally have any prerogative to claim ownership or possession of those western lands in the first place? And if so, does it have the prerogative thereafter to charge fees and create the rules surrounding the common usage of those lands? And it's really, I learned a lot. Uh, and I had already known quite a bit about it. I mean, it's not like I was uninformed, but I really learned a lot by listening to this compilation of his videos yesterday. Um, and who was it that put out these videos again? I was actually, hang on a second, I'll find you her her name. It was a lady that runs a radio show actually through Breitbart um, or through... Yeah, the Breitbart News, uh, Breitbart Radio Network. It's called the Kate Show, and like K, uh, K. How do you? What is it again? K A T E, Kate. I'm getting there. If I can find. Let me just put a little input in. Uh, now I have not seen any of these videos, and I haven't done any research on this. I'm just going to kind of talk off the top of my head to try to, from my understanding, to to answer the questions of does the federal government have authority in those states to begin with. <clears throat> and the issue is is, is when, the, when the United States uh, gains territory, you know, through Mexico or through Spain after the Spanish-American War, Mexico after the Mexican War, to where we got, you know, Texas and California and all these places, then absolutely they have authority. They have total authority in those states because who else would? 
Okay, they fought the war. They used their military, their expenses to get it as a property for the United States. We're bound by the Northwest Ordinance of how to go ahead and organize these areas into states. I mean, who else would have the authority to, to uh, settle disputes? The, the, the legislature of North Carolina? So by they, by they, you're talking about? Congress. Well, yes. see, but there you're getting back to the issue of federal government versus national government. And I think that's part of the problem is the language that we use. Because the people in Nevada, the people in Oregon, the people in all of these states, these ranchers, they're all speaking with the term federal government. But what they really mean is the national government. And if you make that nuanced distinction, then I would argue that they're correct to a degree in that the national government technically, constitutionally, does not have that authority. But I would I would dispute that. Well, uh, it it, it would it wouldn't if their legal status as citizens was all proper and the states were actually proper states. Well, I'm going back to the concept of prior to their statehood. You know, do they have a right to settle disputes because we're talking about this BLM? Oh, I got being it. kind of two entities, and so let's just go to the foundation and work our way up. But what Milo is talking about, I think, is that when these when the when lands were originally acquired, it wasn't a national but a federal government that acquired them, right? Well, let's just say, let's. No, I would I would disagree with that also to a degree in that you got to remember when you read the Federalist Papers, the issue was are we creating a national government or are we creating a federal government? And the answer was both. <laughs> uh, it's, it's national in money, it's national in war, it's national in treaties, it's national in the military, uh, but it's federal in that the states get to retain all their sovereignty and do whatever they want within their borders, and, the, and the, the, the national government has no authority in there. So it's a federal union with certain national aspects of that union. Sure. And so as a if, – if North Carolina is only, you know, uh, it's only agenda and only business – primarily is for North Carolina, then when the national government acquires, you know, Texas through war with Mexico or Arizona or, or Nevada, who controls that? Who has authority? The United States military has authority, and they have total authority over it. The United States government, the flag of the United States, the flag of the United States, remember, is a, is the, uh, is a military flag. And when it flies over there, and then when you have the settlers go out there, they start settling it so that they can get up to the the population needs to organize a state. Who's protecting them? Well, you got the old forts and the cavalry and and all that out there, and they're they are there to protect those people. Uh, those people are owe they owe that military uh, allegiance, and they owe it they that support. So they have a, a right to tax and to charge for certain things, uh, so that they can maintain you know the safety of the the people out there until they can organize. And then this gets to the point of contention we've had is, well, once they get enough people and they get organized enough and they get a constitution and they apply for statehood, well, at that point, traditionally up until this point of Nevada, is the states decided it. You know, they had an organization. They already had a government operating, the, uh, the territorial government. And so they would operate a constitutional convention through the territorial government, not you know five other groups of people out there. Uh, each saying they're legitimate. It had to be done legitimately. 
they get a constitution, apply to come in as a state, and once they came in as a state, the property, all the property reverts over to the state with the exception of the areas for the post offices and if they decide to put military posts out there and, and cede property over to the federal government um, would be the proper way to do it. Uh, our problem is, is nothing was done properly and we're trying to figure out how to unravel it and you just got to go back to a solid foundation and work your way up again. So you got you got to go back in in time, and you got to figure out well what I guess what at what point did it change from being the the lands being owned by a federal slash national government representative of the state the the state citizens uh, versus a federal national government representative of the United States citizens? Well, that hasn't changed. That's that's kind of the thing is that in, especially in the complicated case with Nevada but even in the case of other states it's all I mean all the territory all of the states technically right now are territories even even the ones that pre-existed the civil war they were all converted in a in a I guess from the legal point of view they were all converted to to territories conquered territories at that and so none of them are technically states in a proper sense within a constitutional union right now. I mean, they're all just states in name only. But Nevada's is particularly complicated because the the change really was not a change at all. It was a condition that existed from the conception of that political body. Am I Am I wrong about that? I mean, they've uh, been nationalized yeah. pretty much since they started out. And regardless of how clear and simple the changes may have been for other states, in theirs it seems to me that the complication is compounded because their their situation has always been one from, from the time they were, you know, openly recognized as a federal territory up until the present day, they've really never had a proper process of becoming a state and having those lands handed over to, to their state. Well, let, let's stop at one location and, and try not to make it too complicated, is is that if we say that by their constitution that they originally had, that the federal government didn't have authority, or that well, they said that they had paramount allegiance to the U.S. government, okay, so if we just take that, my paramount allegiance is to the United States government. So it's kind of like uh, living in a county of North Carolina. I live in Mecklenburg County. As a, as a citizen of Mecklenburg County, I have paramount allegiance to the state of North Carolina. Okay, So I'm, a, I'm at a lesser government down here in, in the county to the federal government. There's nothing I can do in, a, in the city sh- charter or the county charter of Mecklenburg County that can trump the state government. If if the state of North Carolina says, hey, we're going to say that uh, we have authority in all counties to do something, and they pass that, well, my paramount allegiance is to Raleigh, is to the state of North Carolina. I've got to accept that. doesn't matter what's in our uh, city codes or whatever. And so with Nevada, by claiming paramount allegiance to the federal government, when they pass a law on the Bureau of Land Management, then you know they're the lesser entity looking to what they self-describe as the superior entity, and their laws cannot be in conflict with the superior. And so as soon as the federal government passes those laws, it becomes binding on them by their own statement. 
see that that is that is precisely what to me conflicts with the the equal footing doctrine. It does not make sense to me how any state could consider itself or be considered to have entered on equal footing with the original thirteen when it declares its own subordination to the created entity, the federal or national or whatever government a the original states created that federal government. It was subordinate to them, not the other way around. I and what was the function? What was the original function, the reason to create the federal slash national government? Well, it was it was for the purposes primarily of of common defense and to uh, manage interstate commerce and to protect the rights of the people of all the states. That's that's true, but it's a protectorate. It is it is is to be? It's a benefit. It is not a lord. We did not create a lord. We created a a uh, an entity for our benefit. Right. So that would seem to benefit those. You, you have a servant, and then turn around and hand your sovereignty, your prerogative, your your state power, <laughs> off to that servant, and say, now you can tell me what to do and what to be. But but to me, breaking it back down to Nevada, they still only have two choices. Trying to manipulate the situation they're in today to try to figure out where their original constitution makes it to where they have a valid argument, to me, is is not valid. You either got to say because there's so many things where they they've already sworn over saying that they're going to do what the federal government says. You got issues of coercion. You got all sorts of things. The only way to remedy Nevada's issue. The only way to remedy it is to reestablish, come back in on, on a uh, footing with the original third tape. That's not what you're saying, Join though, is us. Not what who's saying. That That's not what you were saying, though, Milo, is it? I mean, that you weren't proposing that uh, Nevada can just simply stay as, as it is with its current agreement uh, to, to be under federal... I'm not federal necessarily saying that, that they got to stay there. It's the indication that there is potentially remedy in this situation potentially there for them because of things that have said. I would say that old constitution is a nullity. They still have a right to go back. They, the only true remedy in all this, if we want to get the federal government out of our hair, the Bureau of Land Management out of our states, is to get a lawful state in place. Otherwise, you're just talking, you know, well, you know, we're, we're in a, a therapy session of, you know, hey, I got this problem, what do I do? Well, I understand, you know, what you're saying about their remedy consisting of actually getting a proper state in place, as you said, at a lawful state. But my, I guess my question is specifically, when they decide to do that, can they do that with the state constitution, in particular the pr- provision about paramount allegiance? Can they really do that with that provision? And I am... I'm kind of falling down on the side here of that they can't because now that, you're saying let me just get this clear you're saying like if they were to apply to us they want to come back into the union they want to correct the reconstruction issues that we talk about and they're applying to us who do we recognize and how do we recognize a legitimate entity coming in and then what are their rights and or how do we recognize a, a legitimate constitution yeah how Is do that we kind re- of what you're asking what, what do we define a legitimate lawful state as as being uh, they, because they went from because they went from what they were before to this allegiance, 
within the realm of what they already were before, which would was citizens of Nevada. They they did it within that immediate status. They're that, not citizens of Nevada. They were citizens of the territory of Nevada prior to. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that's technically a federal status. Right, because they're United so, States citizens under the protection of the United States military. And precisely. So they were federal citizens when Nevada right. was a territory. In 1863, Nevada drafts a constitution. The, the people living there draft a constitution and apply to the Congress for statehood. And they do that in that constitution. They do that with the provision explicitly stating that they are subordinate as a state to the federal government. Assume for a moment there was no coercion, that that was what they really wanted, that they knew what they were saying, and that was precisely what they wanted to be. I'm saying that I don't think that that, even freely done, constitutes equal footing, precisely because of the issues John was just discussing about what that means with respect to what the state and the citizens of Nevada have a prerogative after that to do or not do, what they can or cannot reject, essentially saying they are not entering on equal footing with the original 13 with those provisions in their constitution because they're essentially saying, by doing that, they're saying that the federal government can tell them what to be and what they can and cannot do as a state and that there's nothing that they can do as a state that can reject or override any federal action. That's not equal footing. Well, I think there's one maxim of law that might come into play here, and that is, you know, all waiver of rights must be done knowingly, willingly, you know, uh, with full disclosure. And also that uh, I have no right or authority to waive the rights of my uh, posterity. So if, if they came in to try to waive the rights of their posterity, in other words, enslave their children and grandchildren for eternity, mm-hmm. you know, they have no right to do that. Right. And so again, but again, I think this is just as simple as attacking that one little phraseology and not putting so much emphasis on it, because there's all sorts of things that can be done with that to attack that one particular. I mean, there's, there's just way too many variables. Was it done with coercion? Well, possibly, or was it not? Could they do this? Is I think all that is its own legal argument that I think if you put a lot of time into, actually not a whole lot, but some time into it, you could probably come to a rational, reasonable conclusion of it. But um, And maybe we need to do that. But I just think that uh, the whole issue still surrounding them is you know, they're not a legitimate state, and, they're, and they've got right, issues. Right now, and, and, and here's, here's something I want to say is, is like, Milo, that what you wrote on Facebook the other day was, was superb. It was excellent. I was yeah. like, man, Milo nailed this thing, you know, the one where you're both right and you're both wrong. Is because, I mean, that's the issue. It, depending on – if you're not looking at it from a true foundation, if you're just going to look at it with blinders on to history on one side, you're going to come to this conclusion. If you look at it with blinders on to the other side, you're going to come to this conclusion, and you're both right and you're both wrong. The issue is to take your blinders off, find out what the truth is, and operate off of that. Do you mind if – I mean, I'm I'm looking at it, and I know that this isn't you know read off of Facebook time, but do you care if I just kind of briefly read for the sake of anybody that might listen to this? What? Well, I think you could probably post it on the website. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. 
I mean, and if you've got some excerpts you want to read out of it, go ahead. Well, essentially the background was that it was a, it was a post about whether or not Cliven Bundy was a political prisoner. Uh, and the first comment from the first gentleman was uh, that Cliven did break the law. You can object to the law, but it's there, and he broke it. And then another gentleman chimed in and said that what Cliven broke was not law, that it was essentially unconstitutional acts. It was the color of law. Uh, he says that it has to be constitutional before it can be considered law, and laws have not been passed, legitimate laws have not been passed in the U.S. since the 1860s. And my response to both of those gentlemen was that they're both right and they're both wrong. And I said, please allow me to explain. Uh, the statutory acts that Bundy and others violated were indeed unconstitutional acts. Um, in fact, they were acts passed by an unconstitutionally established de facto government. Um, and I'm trying not to read the whole thing here. I just want to read little bits and pieces. Um, so, yes, the uh, second gentleman is right to say that the laws which Bundy and company violated were not law, and I cited them to uh, Norton v. Shelby County and Marbury v. Madison uh, for what constitutes a, a, an actual law. <laughs> and then I said, however, the first gentleman is also correct to say that Bundy and company broke the law. Um, and how do you break a law that isn't really a law? And the reason is because he, they, those those people, the ranchers, Bundy, etc., consented to the subordination to the body politic and the legal and political system in which those acts exist and to which they apply. In other words, he consented to the government that made those laws. He consented to the government which made those laws and the process whereby they were made, and therefore is bound to obedience to those acts. His legal status attests to his consent to that system of law and government, and that self-identification with that political body gives it, that political body, uh, whether it's fundamentally legitimate or not, uh, gives it jurisdiction over him personally, called personum jurisdiction. And I go on, there's more to it there, I can share it with the... Uh, with the the talk shoe when we get done, however we're going to wind up doing that. But that's essentially what I'm saying. I mean, it, it really all goes back to the first discussion that we had about Oregon, which is, you know, summed up with basically, yes, uh, the acts, the 14th Amendment, the, the act that created the BLM, the Reconstruction Acts, everything that flows from those things. All of that is unconstitutional. That's true. But if you consent to it, your consent trumps the unconstitutionality of it. You can consent to and be bound by your consent to an unconstitutional act. And that's kind of what I was saying to, to these two fellows, that you know that's, that's where Cliven is at. That's where all these ranchers are at, is that they've consented to uh, being subordinate, just like the state of Nevada what we're talking about, their constitution. They've consented to a status of subordination to a nationalized system. 
and therefore they are bound by the laws of that nationalized system, even if those laws are not, technically speaking, constitutional. And if now, they don't realize it. The, the, the only thing that matters about those laws and that system's unconstitutionality is the fact that that gives them the option not to consent. And if they don't consent, then where does that leave them? And that brings us to, to where we're at today with whether or not Nevada would be a state or a territory, what would be the status of the individual people residing in Nevada, uh, you know, a, a lawful status, would it be as federal uh, federal citizens, not nationalized U.S. citizens, but just federal citizens within uh, the context of a federal government that doesn't actually exist right now because no one's been elected to hold those offices, or would they be state citizens? And I really don't think that they could right now. Um, it, it opens up this whole can of worms of the questions we're dealing with today. So that's just the, the background on you know, that comment on Facebook that John's referred to a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, and it boils down to, like you so eloquently stated, is your consent. If you consent, you know, if I consent to joining the mafia or the bloods or the crips, okay, I'm consenting to their rules and their laws, you know. And if I violate them and they decide to punish me, you know, kill me, nobody in that organization is going to go against it. They're going to be in agreement. And unless I've got a, a bigger lawful entity that can protect me, but, but I've got to recognize that bigger lawful entity. And so, you know, everyone in the United States is perfectly authorized to join whatever organization you want and whatever bind yourself to whatever laws they have uh, or rules they have. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, you're, you're subject to their punishments also. And of course, the key is that, that people don't realize it, but just because you don't realize it doesn't mean it's not there. And it sounds like, you know, not to be offensive or anything, but Nevada's ignorance uh, runs earlier than, than a lot of the states and that they're not ignorant of the fact, not only of the fact that they're nationalized U.S. citizens, but the fact that their state, even prior to that, that actual point in, in law, uh, was was already was already subjecting itself. They were already subjecting themselves. Right. Yeah, right. And so. we can only make a decision based upon what we know. If we are denied the truth of a situation, we can only make decisions based on the best information we have available. Right. And of course, our position is always, well, if you learn the truth, and that'll change what your options are. Exactly. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to get people to look at. Is is I understand all the where people are. I understand what they've been taught through public education and, and retaught through the media and all sorts of things. The issue is, is if we want to change this thing, if we see that there's a huge problem, we need to find out what the truth is and, and uh, so that we can make have a fresh look at it with the blinders off our eyes and, uh, and figure out what's the best decision to make. And I, my decision is... Let's go back under law. Let's get lawful government back in place. Let's get lawful body politics. Let's get everything back in place. Or, or you can vote for Trump. You know, you can do that. That's not well, right. yeah. <laughs> but I don't really think that's going to help a whole lot. <laughs> um, okay. On that note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On that note. <laughs> since today's primary day. Yay. 
No, I don't know where where to really go from there. I mean, I find it encouraging that states like Oregon and Washington and California could really pursue lawful statehood without a whole lot of obstacles in their way. Um, I'm sad, kind of, that, that Nevada has to go through so many hoops, but that's just the history of their state. And I don't know. I mean, it's just honestly... If you're gonna if you're gonna fix this in a lawful way, if you're going to fix it a proper way, they really do need to know and be aware of the obstacles that stand in their way because they have legitimate grievances about the way they're being treated based on their conception, which is a misconception unfortunately, but based on their conception of what they've always been taught that they they were. Uh, a state within a federal union, and that they were citizens with rights. Now, there's not a lot of issue made about what it means to be a U.S. citizen or a state citizen, and people don't often distinguish. They just assume U.S. citizens have all the same rights as state citizens did. Uh, They're wrong. They're wrong about that. But there's a way to fix it, even for the most complicated of states, Uh, Nevada being probably one of the most complicated situations, and I think that they should find some hope in that. I just hope we can get that information out there in front of enough people so that they have, you know, the the adequate knowledge to make proper good decisions about this. And and I think that uh, if if you can bend the right ear, is for them to go into negotiations with us. Negotiations and, and and discussion and that would and, be uh, ideal. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, there needs to be more education and research. I would say research is really critical on this topic because you've you've not only got Nevada, but you've got those other states. You have these categories that we've kind of generally gone over, but a lot more research needs to be done in the methods and and such of uh, each each and every state uh, here. Uh, you know, every person that's here today, you know, what is your um, what is your remedy? Yep. Well, I don't know. I mean, as far as uh, as far as helping the people that are that have already made a stand and are now in jail, I don't know that there's a whole lot that we can do for them for their present charges. They didn't have their status correct. They don't have proper legal standing going in. But I mean, they. What I was talking about with Lavoie's videos earlier, he makes a lot of very compelling arguments if you don't know the whole story. Right. If you're coming at it from that common point of view, the you know the the point of view that's only informed by you know superficial constitutional research and understanding, then it sounds like what he says is you know, absolutely correct, and that they really do have a legitimate constitutional uh, uh, argument. Um, He speaks of, I can't remember the exact term, but it's like previous rights to land usage. This is one of the things he explains. And Cliff, by the way, I just sent you that that audio that you were asking about. Um, But he speaks of these pre-existing rights that go back to before even the states out there were made states, supposedly, whatever you want to say about that. 
<clears throat> before they were purportedly made states, there were these ranchers that were out there that had laid claim to certain territories, and they were using those to graze on. And they had the range wars that they would fight over, you know, who had the rights to use it, who had water rights, who had grazing rights to, to grasslands and stuff like that. And uh, then, of course, the BLM, the federal government, whatever entity it was called at the time uh, in the early 20th century, came in and said, we're going to help you manage this. Well, well those are the General Land Office and the Grazing Service. They were combined. Okay. And there was also the Land Ordinance, which goes back, and the Northwest Ordinance. Uh, and I think there's always the, the 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 concept people need to realize is anytime the federal government says, "Hey, we're going to come in and help you with this," it's never a good idea. <laughs> well, for for better or worse, most of the people out there accepted it at the time. And if they did that, you know, under ignorance or or if they were frauded into it or however it occurred, uh, he speaks of these pre-existing rights, and if you if you claim a right, he, he says if you claim a right, if you use that right, and if you defend that right, then the right remains yours regardless of, of whatever anybody else's claim to it may be. And he speaks of an example of standing well, in line. Well, he's right. You, you stand in line, say you're the first person in line at, the, at ticket sales for a concert or something. You stand in line, and uh, if you're the first person, you've claimed that spot. Well, you're standing there and you stay there. You're using, you're exercising that right. You're exercising that claim. You're not leaving your spot in line. If some somebody bigger than you comes in and tries to push their way in front of you, then you have an option to either defend that right or, or abdicate it. And if you abdicate it, you let them in front of you and you've lost it. If you defend it, then you've maintained it even if you lose the fight. Now, let me let me let me make a. Uh, you're dealing with two totally different concepts there, though, that I'm not sure he understands. One is uh, latches and estoppel. In other words, if uh, in law, if you openly use property for over 20 years, I think it's 20 years, then the the owner, then it, it can become a right of way, and the owner can't get total claim over it again. Um, versus um, you know what you originally said was that if you exercise it, if you assert your right and you exercise and you stand on it and you can defend your right, okay. Well, that's what they're doing now. They're trying to defend that right because the defense is in the court now. Now they've got to bring the legal argument in. So they're still in the middle of exercising their right. Part of exercising your rights is taking it to court, and then that's where you get it adjudicated as whether he, it was a right or not. So he's still in the middle of his his own argument that he's putting down. Right. Well, obviously there's a bunch of complicating factors because the courts are owned by, I, I guess, or run or possessed or whatever. The courts are controlled by and and created by a an institution that is technically unconstitutional. So you have that question. Uh, but you still have laws within it. You know, he's like like you said originally. He has entered into a status uh, as a U.S. citizen. He right. is making a claim, and he may have that right that he says. You know, he may could win that in court. You just got to go back. The issue is, is can he win that in court? Right. 
and that is, that is that's their legal argument that they're trying to use as citizens within that de facto system and pursuant to its own laws and acts and, and I mean it's common law and statutory law a combination of the two so yeah cuz let me just say this one last last thing is cuz it could break down he could win in court and then they could pay him back for all of his lost time lost property he could sue them for you know lost time you know, you can. You know, people win in these situations all the time if they have a good legal argument. And there, there actually have been a few of these ranchers. Uh, one in particular that has been made a, a kind of big issue about lately. Can't remember his name, but he he did. He fought this for 20 years in court, roughly. Uh, You're talking about a guy that kind of wrote his own uh, defense. Yeah, he actually went to law school and became an attorney himself. He's He's like a rancher attorney now, <laughs> and uh, he kind of took over the fight that his father had started with the BLM, and he's won it, but they haven't given him his land usage back, his, his permits. They, and have, let me just not, they have not uh, – in fact, they're appealing it, I believe. Let me still interject one other thing is, is, is that in this legal fight to exert your – or to, to assert your right to whatever you claim your right is, you know, there's a fine line between taking the legal, peaceful direction versus let's bring out the militia and let's put guns out here and let's make a stand. Because now you've just changed over to revolution. And if you if you break out the guns, you better be prepared to win or lose. I mean, that's what our founding fathers did. It was they pledged their lives, honors, uh, uh, and property. And you know, when when you decide to bring the guns out. You change the entire thing. I've always looked at it as, at it as a step. You know, we've always drawn lines in the sand. Uh, John, I think you've made this you've made this uh, comparison before. You draw a line in the sand, and then you step back, and you draw another line, and you step back, and you keep. We've never actually tried, I don't think, as Americans, to draw a line and stand there, not by force of arms, but simply by uh, a peaceful legal resistance. We've never actually tried to do that. So they're skipping that step, and they're going straight to violent revolution frustration has has taken them here because they don't really understand the situation all these things that we've been bringing up for the last hour and a half they don't understand yeah. you know why and so it's confusing to them and that breeds uh frustration and and clarity gives you a different choice to make and they felt that their only option was to break out guns but i'm telling you as soon as you've done that you've, you've just crossed the line over to a whole new realm and odds of winning at that point are pretty darn slim if you, if you think you've got a legal argument, take it into court. Keep grazing, keep going until they take you into court, and then fight it in there. But uh, armed resistance is a whole different animal. Well, guys, I hate to draw this. Uh, well, really, we're not drawing it short. We're actually in about uh, an hour and 26 minutes in here, and this is some good conversation. But maybe uh, maybe we can pick this up at another point in time and um, uh, sort of draw this to a close at this point. I think we've gone over some really, really interesting topics here. Sounds Very good. good. I think that there's a lot more that could be discussed about it, but yeah, I don't reckon anybody's really going to keep listening for two or three hours. <laughs> so, this is thanks for a good archive. Point. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks guys for uh, having the call, and uh, uh, I guess until next time. No, thanks, thank Cliff. you. And if you know anybody in Nevada, Cliff, you know, tell them they should talk to us. Okay, will do. All right. Well, thanks, John. Thank you, Milo. Talk to you later. Mm -hmm.
See you guys. Anybody left? Nope, everybody left.